This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Welcome to Teachers Talk Radio, and tonight, a special show on secrecy, the primary curriculum. Uh, We're going to be joined by James Radburn as our host, and two special guests talking about their book, uh, Sequencing the Primary Curriculum, Seamus Gibbons and Emma Leonard. At this point, I would like to really point out again, thank you very much to Sage, who have very much kindly not only sponsored the show, but have also provided us with a 25% off if you go directly to the Sage website. Now, the Sage website is uk.sagepub.com, and I've got a whole array of fantastic books, including this one by Seamus and Emma on sequencing the primary curriculum. Now, the most important thing around this is the discount code. So don't forget this, TTR25. So if you want 25% off any books, if you buy directly from the Sage website, don't forget to use the discount code TTR25. Hello, as Nathan did such a lovely uh, introduction so far. Welcome to Teachers Talk Radio tonight, where we're going to share a really interesting topic about sequencing the primary curriculum. I've got both Emma and Seamus who have written this fabulous book that I've got in front of me. Particularly like that front cover is very bright and bold, very much in the primary area of that that we're going to discuss later tonight. Now, this book serves as a beacon of knowledge, guiding those trainee teachers and early career teachers on a journey throughout the intricate world of curriculum planning and as a must-read for anyone striving to provide their students with a balance and a cohesive learning experience. Now, it looks like we've got Emma and Seamus on the call with us tonight who are listening at the moment. So, welcome. Hello. How are you? Hi, Jane. Sorry that I just had to change some permissions to make, make this work. Thanks for having us. Oh, thank you for coming on and... Uh, don't worry, it's always technology. There's always one or two things, isn't there, <laughs> with that. But thank you for joining us this evening. And hopefully Seamus will be able to join us um, at the moment. But while we're waiting for him, Emma, do you want to give us a little bit of a breakdown of you, um, your role, yeah. and how you came to write this book that we're going to talk about tonight? Yeah, um, fantastic. Thanks, James. So, Um, Seamus and I actually taught together in the first school where I was an NQT. So um, that was a long time ago. I won't specify how many years. Um, We worked together um, in central London in a school that um, was very challenging in many ways, absolutely incredible in many ways too. Um, But the one thing that it really lacked was a curriculum in any sort of form. Um, So we really sort of spent the first few years of our careers sort of trying to figure out how to be teachers, um, trying to figure out what it was we needed to teach. Um, And we did our very best. I'm not sure whether or not we did a great job, but we did our best. Um, And then fast forward to a couple of years ago now, um, and and Seamus is leading on um, ITT uh, for a big national um, mat. And he called me one day and he said, Emma, I need I need some materials for my students, for my ITT students. I need some curriculum materials. I need somewhere I can send them to, um, you know, to find out what they need to know um, during their prep, their teaching, their initial teacher training year. And he said he couldn't find it. So he said to me, should we have a go at writing it? 
Um, so that's how the book kind of started, really, just really from a need to um, provide some some clear, um, some coherent materials for teaching students. And actually, as we started writing it, we realized this is what we needed in our first, you know, first few years of our career when we were, you know, it's huge. We all know this. The teaching role is huge. There's many things to be thinking about. Um, and we were trying to sort of muddle along without um, without that sort of core text that we could refer back to. So that's kind of where it came from. Um, we pitched it to a publisher to Sage Education, um, who really got on board with, with our sort of ideas and supported us through the process. Um, and I can't quite believe it because I feel like I'm just a teacher, but um, we managed to write a book. And that's um, that's sort of how we got there. Brilliant. Thank you. And uh, Seamus, thank you very much for joining us this evening too. It'd be really good if you just gave us a little bit of introduction about you. Um, and your background as well, because I think it really sets the scene, as Emma did, to why this book came about, but also your experiences that have obviously fed into this. And as Emma already alluded to, the massive influence you have in the ITT um, space as well. Yeah. Um, hi, James. Um, I think, well, I guess my sort of teaching career is that you can probably hear from my accent that I am Irish. Um, but I've always been teaching within London. Um, so I actually started in Hillingdon in a, a really solid school, actually, um, in the school that was really well led, had a really rigorous curriculum in place. And then from that, I moved to the school where actually I'm, 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 I seen the other side of a school that maybe wasn't as structured and I wasn't as well organized and seen some of the consequences of that, which, which very much led to the motivation to really try to ensure that we do have curriculum um, which supports us as teachers and supports our children as learners. Um, and that was in um, a central London local authority. Um, and then I did some time as um, an advanced skills teacher back then. They used to exist. A lot of my work was doing some curriculum work and teaching and learning work in some schools that were in challenging circumstances across central London. Um, and then following that, I moved into my deputy head teacher role and then um, since then I have become a head teacher and um, I'm now an executive head teacher at three schools within um, central London across Westminster and Hammersmith and Fulham and um, what it uh, was you know actually pretty fortunate position I've got is I get to work with uh, primary trainee teachers and I think it's been um, a really really fascinating experience for me because I can really reflect on my own experiences as a training teacher and to where we are now and i think i was only saying to emma earlier we're sort of going through that recruitment drive at the moment and one of the questions we always say to the training teachers is, is what's your area for development and nine times out of ten it comes back to some element of the primary curriculum or so many of the trainees say oh gosh I, you know i haven't really looked at this or that's just my gcse's or you know i, I need to refresh my memory on that or it feels really overwhelming try and get my head around that so that really sort of motivated us to really think about well how can we support these trainees who are new to the profession we want them to have a really great start we want them to be really successful and um, this is coming up again and again that they are finding the curriculum a little bit overwhelming and um, how do we support them to benchmark what, what they want to understand or what they should understand and that then feeds through to the ect year our new first year of leadership and that really motivated myself and Emma to begin to think about, well, is there a resource that we could create for them 
that would make your curriculum seem less overwhelming, make it seem a bit more accessible, and just sort of give them a bit of a scaffold and a bit of a support to build a foundation understanding, which is you know a real challenge as a primary school teacher is you're trying to get your head around so many different subjects. We just wanted to really put something in place for those new to the profession. Excellent. Well, I think a lot of the conversations that we're going to have tonight around sequencing the primary curriculum, a lot of the these ideas will also be relevant to our secondary colleagues. And I know later I'll probably ask you some questions about that progression and that sequencing all the way from early years through primary up to secondary as well. But before we get started, what may seem a simple question, um, but Emma, I'm going to pose this to you first. What do we mean by curriculum? Oh, it's such a good question, James. I could talk about it all night. Um, really for us, you know, as Seamus and I work in this space and curriculum really is the sort of substance of what we promise our children. What is it you're going to get if you come to this school? And and I feel really strongly that, you know, curriculum really feeds into school vision and it's really our sort of gift to our children. It's what they go out into the world with. So they're going to go off to secondary school. They're going to be navigating, you know, the complexities of teenage years. But if they've got a really solid foundation of understanding who they are in the world around them from their primary curriculum, then that's kind of the best, um, the, the sort of best way we can really prepare them. And the way we've thought about curriculum in the book is the idea of it really being a journey. So the word curriculum is derived from a Latin word carere, which means to run and and, and the um, noun really um, comes from the meaning of sort of a race course. So if we think of curriculum as this kind of journey that's set out for us, and we know that some children will be running that race, some children will need some support to run that race, some children might run in different directions. But if we can have this real goal at the end for what we want, you know, that gift, you know, what do we want it to look like for those 11, 12 year olds, you know, when they leave us? then we can then start working backwards and think about the steps that they need to take in order to get there. So we know, um, you know, I keep calling it the national, new national curriculum, but as Seamus pointed out to me earlier, it's 10 years old now. But, you know, we have the national curriculum, which, which sets out some of those end points of what we want children to know. But when we, you know, when we're then thinking about what does that look like into the in the classroom, we've got this golf where you know this is the sort of like blank space where we need to try and figure it out you know I've got this end goal but what does that mean for me on a Monday afternoon when I'm going to teach my class in year four art you know so we need to um you know try and work out what it is we need to do with that and and I know from our experience um in the school we taught at together you know if you're shown a dusty cupboard and just given a register you know off you go and you sort of think, okay, why are we doing that to teachers? Why are we saying, you know, just make it up as you go along? Because actually, even with the best will in the world, what you come up with, if you're not a history specialist or a geography specialist or a science specialist, is not going to be, um, you know, the really best we can do for the children. So I kind of think if we go back to that idea of the curriculum being this gift, then we want it to be really, really good. We want it to be the best that we can come up with. So we've got to support teachers to really understand that journey, to understand the subject disciplines, 
to you know to understand those um those end goals and the small steps that we need to take to get there um it's complicated um and we know you know we, we all work you know in schools and we know it's never finished it's never perfect um we always joke in in um one of my roles that we don't want to take the word draft off our curriculum maps because they should always be a draft you know the world is changing um you know the curriculum work is never done but what we can do is really think about what goes into the curriculum so what is going into this course this um you know racetrack whatever we want to call it you know what's going into that journey to really support children to get to those end goals and i think um you know this is a fascinating sort of conversation that you know we could all come up with lots of different ideas of what should go in there but the conversation itself is the important thing rather than just letting teachers across the country you know reinvent the wheel make it up as they go along they're busy they're exhausted they're trying to build relationships with their children they're trying to do behavior management so you know let's give them something you know that they can use um to really support them in their journey as well i hope that answers it (laughs) (laughs) so i think let's dive into this in some depth then because we could be as you alluded to emma um here for hours and hours and we're going to try and i'm going to try and guide our way through this journey um and make sure i haven't made it up as i go along as well as you put but i think the (laughs) phrase you said there that was really good was curriculum um it's a substance of what we promise our children and going through that you have deliberately uh seamus used the word sequencing in the title so what are that fundamental principles behind curriculum coherence and that sequencing? And why is it really vital to primary education? Yeah, um, I think when we began to think around the actual design of the book, um, like Emma was saying, it, it, it's really quite complex to get our head around what curriculum means and what it should look like. Um, and when we went... I thought about how to lay out the book. We actually start very much with a very top level view of what is curriculum and what we mean by that. And then we moved on to what do we mean by the national curriculum? Um, and following that, then we began to look a little bit deeper. Well, what do we mean by coherent and sequenced? Um, and we also dedicated chapter to diversity and inclusion because we thought all these elements are really important. So we're talking about curriculum on the whole. And then the design of the book moved into each of those different disciplines. And we explored why do we teach it? How can we sequence knowledge? And then providing lots of examples of what knowledge could look like when it's sequenced. What might progress look like in this unit? Where does it start in the early years? And how does it move up through key stage one, key stage two? What elements from the national curriculum, you know, subject scope? And what are some of the highlights from that? How do you build your subject knowledge as a teacher? What resources are useful? Um, questions for experts. And then equally, we had some discussion questions for them to reflect on because we thought that real sort of familiar, coherent way of each chapter being in that same cycle enabled those new to the profession to really um, have a basis to understand what we mean when we talk around curriculum design. And a big feature, as you say, is thinking about what do we mean by coherence or what do we mean by sequencing? I mean, and I guess sort of in a nutshell, it's having those really clear endpoints. What do we want children to learn um, at different points in a primary education? And and why? What's the rationale behind that? 
And then what does that look like in those small sequential steps? So if we want them to learn X by the time they're leaving us in year six, well, well, where does that begin in early years? And then where does that move to in year one, year two, year three, year four, year five, year six? And, and how do we build that conceptual knowledge? And then alongside that, you know, where is our school vision within those sequencing? How is our curriculum aligning and bringing to life what our school vision is? Um, how is that sequencing? How is that coherence going hand in hand with what we stand for as a school? Um, and then I guess alongside that, you're thinking around the pedagogy, what is the best way we're going to teach some of those small steps? How are we going to make sure that those children are learning what we want them to learn? And when and why? And then what are we going to do about it if they don't learn it? And I think that sequencing is just really about that depth of learning. That we're teaching things in small steps and we're revisiting and we're building on it. And we're also accepting that children will forget. And forgetting is a really important part of learning. So our curriculum in those small steps is facilitating opportunities to forget so we can teach it. And I think when we talk around that curriculum design and that sequencing, it is about children getting better over time. And, you know, myself and Emma were only talking earlier about um, sort of enjoyment of curriculum and we like what we're good at. And a really important bit of sequencing is it gives children opportunities to revisit and build on knowledge um, and skills over time so they get better. So it might be, you were saying, for example, one of the you know, curriculum, you get the opportunity to teach games. And there's always a temptation to say, okay, I might do netball one day, then I might do basketball the next day, then I might do hockey the next day. But if children are constantly changing, are we giving them enough time to really build that expertise and to build those mental models? Where if each year, for example, they see hockey or they see basketball, and then they're revisiting their rules and different ways of developing their skills and their knowledge over time, they're becoming better and better and better. They were more likely to develop that deeper learning of that particular game and they're more likely to instill that love um, of that curriculum subject. And then more likely as a children enter in key stage three to continue to study that or to build that sort of connection. So I think it's it's, it's really about those small steps to, to help reach those end goals. And I think... Um, and so Emma, go on. Oh, sorry. Sorry, I just want to add, um, it, for, for me, the sequencing is, very much thinking about that sort of knowledge building over time. And, and I'll just give you a quick anecdote, but Seamus actually observed me teach once when he was an advanced skills teacher. Um, and I did this wonderful lesson. It was brilliant. We did lots of fun things in it. And at the end, Seamus said to me, Emma, you know, that that was great. Like the kids had a lovely time. And then he said to me, what did they learn? And I couldn't answer, <laughs> I couldn't answer him. And it was the first person that had actually observed me and said to me, you know, spoken to me about the learning rather than the sort of the doing. Had I, at the time we had these old PCs in our in our um, corner of the room and had I used them because that would tick off the IT and, you know, had I used my TA, that would be ticked off. You know, what were the children, were they having fun? You know, all the rest of it. And I, and I just think the sequencing of the curriculum really feeds into that idea of what are they learning? What are they learning? How are they building on their prior knowledge? Where's that prior knowledge come from in the curriculum? Has that been specified somewhere else? And then where are they going with this? You know, rather than just thinking about those like episodes of learning, you know, when, you know, all I'd thought about for like those two weeks before that was that one 45 minutes, minutes that Seamus would be sat at the back of my classroom. And actually I hadn't thought about the learning at all. So, you know, learning curve for me. 
Um, and and we're still friends after that. But, you know, it was really, really important. And it was a really, it was like, you know, I remember it so well because it was the first time I actually started thinking, well, what what should they be learning? And, you know, have we, has anyone really specified this? Um, and it got me, you know, reading um, into sort of um, E.D. Hirsch and core knowledge and all of that sort of thing. And, and my career took a bit of a different path. But, you know, I think it's really important that we come back to that. You know, if we're thinking about a sequence, what are they learning in what order? How are they building on that knowledge? And so that shame, you know, as Seamus pointed out, so they can feel confident with it and, you know, and feel, you know, feel like they're enjoying it because they can sense that feeling that they're getting better at something, which makes us all feel good, right? And I think that's really important, Amber. You preempted the question I was going to ask you. And I, and I think with primary schools, especially where you are spinning so many plates, uh, whether it's the nativity or with parents or doing sports fixtures, as well as teaching, sometimes you're in your own little silo. You don't know what that pyonology is. You don't know necessarily what those small steps are. And so something I know we'll come on to later is that role of subject leadership um, at a little bit that we may touch on. But knowing that journey through is foundational. And as uh, Seamus, you alluded to a little bit earlier about talk, the book talks about national curriculum, but you've got a whole chapter on about diversity and inclusion. And I kind of want to for you to summarize why that is a really important element of the curriculum. And also, um, we will then go into another bit about schemes of learning. But I think at this point, I want to um, say thank you for Sage, who is sponsoring tonight's show on Teachers Talk Radio and very kindly um, sent me a copy of your book, which I have had by my bedside um, looking through and reflecting myself and going through all of the questions um, within there, because what it does do is make you reflect. And, and as Emma, you just said, think about that why as well. So Seamus, over to you about that diversity and inclusion and the importance of that. Yeah, I, I mean, I think for us, we live in communities that have a range of, you know, different languages, ethnic groups, religious beliefs, disabilities, sexual orientations, different family setups. Um, I mean, you know, we're really passionate and we really believe that it's important that our children see themselves within the curriculum they're learning. Um, so when we are seeing different scientists or astronomers or poets or artists, it's really empowering for the children that we teach if they see themselves mirrored within that curriculum. Um, you know, if one of our children has a disability and I guess to see somebody else with a similar disability and here's a really successful story behind it, um, it sends a really positive message to all the children. Um, and as we design the curriculum, we do think it's important that those designing the curriculum, those reflecting on the curriculum, that they are thinking around, well, the children we teach as they go through the curriculum journey do they see themselves within it? And what significant people do our children meet as we teach them the curriculum? Are they significant role models? Could we make them, you know, reflective more of the community we serve? Um, or is it just serving, you know, one type of look? How do we ensure we've got that diversity and that inclusion? And we thought it goes well around them, um, you know, all of our schools are have a growing number of um, our pupils with special educational needs and disabilities. And it's really important that we've got really positive representation 
around um, all different aspects. And, and how is this painted in our curriculum? Um, is it missing? Um, is it in a positive light? And if not, then, then what are we going to do about it? And what about stereotypes? You know, are there any particular gender stereotypes that are maybe it could be coming through unconsciously within our um, curriculum? But you know, for in computing, are we seeing enough? Um, you know, females within that subject? If we're thinking around um, football, are we seeing enough females and so on and so forth? And and equally, when we're thinking around new different family setups and members of different communities. Again, is that reflective of the society we live in? Is that reflective of the community we serve? Uh, and we think it was sort of it's really important and really powerful that our children see themselves in the curriculum, and, and that is why we, we sort of dedicate a particular section to it. Actually, we thought it's a really important reflection moment in any curriculum. Brilliant, and I think that kind of diversity and voices will come out as we talk about the curriculum and making sure that, as she said, it reflects those pupils, the society they live in. Um, can I ask you a question, Emma, that I think Seamus may want to add on to as well? Because I think this is something, as our curriculum has evolved, and you and you said earlier, it's a new curriculum. It is uh, old years, 2014, so it has been out for a little bit now. But, um, and we've obviously, in the last few years, really there has been a wealth of knowledge and expertise looking at curriculum and the design of it. But one of the questions that keeps coming up is how can, um, what is the key thing between having subjects that are discrete, but also that idea of what we used to almost say is topics um, and how that would go over several subjects as well, whether you'd have discrete or topic-based learning in that way. And what are your thoughts with that and the, some of the sequencing and points you have brought out in your book as well? Emma, start with you. That's a really interesting question. I mean, I've I've taught um, using both kind of approaches um, and I think both can be done really well and I think both can be done really badly. So, you know, it's about the thought that goes into the content of the curriculum. So, when I, when I was first teaching, you know, it was just topic in the school. You know, there was no, um, apart from English and maths and, and PE, I guess, maybe music, you know, everything else was kind of lumped into this sort of vague topic. And the thing is with the topics is we were pretty much just left alone to figure out what goes into those topics. So, you know, that's a classic example of it being done badly because then I come up with all sorts of things that can make a topic on pirates fun. But, you know, I'm not actually thinking about the sequencing of their geography knowledge or their history knowledge or, you know, their art knowledge when we're producing things. So I think um, I think it can be done badly. Also, um, you know, there are instances where schools um, have gone down the sort of discrete route and they've thought, you know, just about history and they've done history really, really, really well. And then they're ready to move on to the next subject. But actually, they do need to kind of evolve together because ultimately, it's about the connections that children are making. So, you know, we know that children don't, you know, come up from early years thinking in, you know, into history and geography and what have you, because they've come from their fa the foundation stage where they've got the seven areas of learning. And, you know, they're really seamless um, links between those things. But we want children to as they work through the curriculum, 
um, to begin to identify, you know, some of the um, characteristics of each subject area or, or each discipline, if you like. And that helps them, you know, to really, I think, to sort of one day see themselves working in those fields if they can have, if they can really identify with them. So I think, you know, it, they, I'm not going to say one is better than the other. I think, you know, as I say, they they can both be done well, they can both be done badly. But the key thing with all of it is what is going into the curriculum and why is it going into into the curriculum and does it deserve to be there? And I think this is one of the things that curriculum makes curriculum design really fascinating is this idea of, you know, whose story gets heard, you know, linking back to what you guys were just saying about, um, you know, diversity, you know, who's voices get amplified in the curriculum and who do we not teach you know which periods of history do we not teach and why which countries do children not encounter and why you know and are we okay with that um you know one of the piece of work um i i've been doing on curriculum work recently in geography has looked at the fact that in key stage one and two children don't necessarily come across any african geography so that's a whole content because they do at key stage three so great but, you know, are we OK with the fact that children could leave primary school having never studied any area of an entire continent um, of the world? So, you know, we've actually added some African geography in tier six using those sort of curriculum freedoms um, that some schools have. But, you know, I think, you know, going back to your point about sort of subjects, because um, I'm going off topic, but, you know, subjects versus topics, I think within the subject for me, it's much more straightforward to pick out that journey because you can say, right, we're going to pick out our journey through the geography curriculum. We're going to look at where those meaningful links occur. So, for example, um, you might have some Northern European geography um, content in the curriculum before children encounter the Anglo-Saxon and Vikings in history so that children, when they're introduced to the Anglo-Saxons and Vikings, they've got that European geography and that northern northern European geography um, sorted in their mind when they look at a map, they can tell where these people are coming from and traveling to. So you might have those connections, but by having geography kind of um, discreetly taught, you can make sure that that content is covered and where and where that um, sequencing really comes into play. I'm not saying you can't do that within a topic, but I think sometimes it um, is slightly harder to pull out the, the sort of journey of each subject. Seamus, have you got um, anything to add to that first? Or? Yeah, I, I mean, I guess sort of similar to Emma, I've seen both done really well. And I guess to me, always at the heart is what's the driver. So once we're not losing sight of what we want the children to learn, where this work well. Um, and I think when we talk around sort of cross-curricular topic learning, it's always what's driving the learning and how is this building on on what the children have already learned and where the children are, are going next. So is it the activity or is it the topic driving the learning or is it the intended curriculum? And I remember that inset data I was alluded to, what that looked like was all of us in new groups in a poll and lots of curriculum statements cut up and we all decided what topics we were going to teach our children next term and we had complete choice over choosing what topic but then what was happening is we were then just going and randomly choosing those curriculum statements we thought could fit in with our topic 
So there was coverage, but it wasn't that sequential and it wasn't that um, curriculum thinking around what hell is this building on it. And it was very much activity and topic learning. I ran in World War II and I decided I wanted to do one or two activities. So I very much forced the curriculum into that. But really, what has got to be at the heart is the intended curriculum and having a real clarity so that there's really logical ties where cross curriculum might work. So if I'm learning about the history of art and in my art lesson, then it might make perfect sense to link this with the history learning that the children have already done. Maybe you something else in the curriculum, but that might be relevant and that might make sense. If it's something that's been forced in the curriculum because it's been driven by the topic and that doesn't work, that's when it becomes problematic. And I think it's really important that we still have that autonomy that teachers can use professional judgment if it is cross-curricular topic, that there are some times when I can teach this discreetly because that will support the children to learn it better. So I think it's just sort of getting that balance. Um, and I have seen both. I do think uh, the topic base and the uh, cross-curricular is more challenging to get right and, and more challenging to get that coverage in a meaningful, sequential way. But I have seen um, some schools do it well. So I think, to be honest, there's no delimitations of both approaches and adapting to sort of meet the needs of, of that curriculum that's been designed really well. Nothing on something that um, you have both alluded to is that the importance of having that whole school picture, that year groups aren't working in their silos and making sure that sequencing does go through and you do build on that skills or knowledge um, when you do make those links as, as well. And so, therefore, because we're thinking about that sequencing through, what role do, um, let's say, off-the-shelf schemes of work then have in a curriculum? And how would you, as a leader in a school, take one of those um, and think about its implementation, especially when we're going back to the points you both made is how do we decide what journey we want pupils to go in. So what's that involved as schemes of work? Um, and if you are looking at schemes of work, what are some of those key elements that you would say are really important to look at or question before you implement anything like that? I'll start with Emma first, and then Seamus, feel free to add anything else in. So um, I really think with schemes of work, I mean, obviously, like anything out there, there's really high quality things and some less high quality things. But ultimately, what you're trying to do is make sure that teachers aren't, like we said before, completely reinventing the wheel when they're not equipped to do that. So I feel like off this, an off-the-shelf um, scheme of work is going to do some of the thinking for you. And hopefully these, these things will have been written by experts in the field who um, you know really understand the subject and can go into real depth with the curriculum design and they can come up with, with a scheme of work. Um, that is going to support teachers and, and you know have done some of that kind of legwork for them. What you don't want is a teacher, you know, obviously just taking something, not thinking about it at all, and just delivering it because over time, you know, the quality of that teaching is not is not going to be as good. But you know what we can't expect primary teachers to do is to write everything from scratch, you know, deliver it all at a really high quality level, manage everything with everything else that they have to do. You know, we know that we're we're often more than just teachers in primary schools. Um, so we can't be expecting them to do that. So I do think with 
with um, schemes of work have real potential to impact on workload, but also to really support teachers' subject knowledge as well, because we can't be experts at everything, even though we're some, you know, trying our best. And I think the subject knowledge element um, can really come into play there. So if you have um, a history curriculum, for example, that has lots of interesting teacher knowledge um, you know, about the Stone Age to the Iron Age or whatever it is you might be teaching, that then saves the teacher time. They don't have to be trawling the internet looking for the most important um, things that happened in that 10,000 year period of history. You know, they can actually be thinking, right, I'm going to focus on this and this is how I'm going to translate it into the classroom. And I think if you're using a really good scheme of work, it really has a lot of potential um, and co- could be quite powerful for teachers because it enables them to sort of free their their own kind of working memories up to think about the pedagogy, to think about how they're going to deliver that for the children that they know best. Because, you know, that scheme of work has been written by somebody, you know, a subject expert, for example, in an office somewhere. Um, and they, that person won't have met those 30 faces that are smiling back at you. Um, so as the teacher, your, you know, real... Um, the really unique part of your job is your relationship with the children, your knowledge of the children. Um, and you can think about that then um, when, when you're using that scheme of work. So I'm, I'm very pro, you know, supporting teachers. And I'm very, I think schemes of work have huge, huge potential. Um, obviously, though, you know, as Seamus said earlier, you want teachers to have a bit of autonomy to be thinking about what is working best for my children in my context. Um, you know, and I, I was talking to a school today down in Cornwall and we were talking about teaching um, growing and changing in early years. And we were thinking about farming and plants. And, and this, this teacher said, well, we're, most of the children are from farming families and they're, you know, we're surrounded by fields full of vegetables. You know, that is very, very different to me teaching that in the middle of Westminster when, when our playground was a concrete jungle on the roof of our building and anything that was growing had to be growing in a pot. You know, so teachers have to think about the context within, within which they're working. But the the um, opportunity we have here with schemes of work is to really do some of that groundwork, do some of that thinking, that subject specialism that is required for some of that thinking. Um, and then let teachers be professionals, support them to be professionals, support their subject knowledge um, and free them up to think about the children that matter the most to them. And I think just to add to that, Emma, I think um, sometimes there's a little bit of a guilt around using a scheme of work, um, but they absolutely do have a role. Um, we, we can't know everything, as Emma said, but if some of our primary skills are extremely small, you might have you know two or three people leading the entire curriculum and these resources that are to help and support. And if schools are looking at schemes of work, you know, I, I would always just want to know, like, you know, what's the rationale? What's the research behind the scheme of work? How do you know that it works? It's all going to need tweaking. So what's relevant to your skill? What's not? And a really critical eye, the ability to contextualize it if and when it's needed is really important. Are there any schools who've already successfully implemented this curriculum? Can you go and visit them? What, what are the lessons learned? Where is the ambition in this curriculum? How can you see it's at least as ambitious as a national curriculum? How goes above and beyond that? Is that sequencing really clear to you? Is it resource appropriate? Or does that bring any additional costs or subscriptions you might not be able to afford long term? 
And equally, just being really more of the limitations of it. Where might this have a limitation for your school that so you're able to reflect on that? And so, Seamus, where then is the teacher autonomy, building on what you've just said, um, in terms of there is a guilt behind schemes of work sometimes? And yes, there are schools that have like 36 pupils in them compared to 800 pupils in primary school. The fast range of expertise and capacity is fast and huge and can't be experts in everything. But often the thought behind schemes is that I've got to teach it this way. This is the rule book. This is what my leaders want me to follow. I've got to follow it in their sequence. But how can you encourage teachers to have autonomy or should they, and how much autonomy should they have? And what are some of those guiding questions you would support uh, initial teacher trainers uh, or initial teachers really thinking about it when they're into the, uh, when they start teaching as well around this area? Yeah, but it's a really interesting question, isn't it? You know, between directive versus instead of autonomy. And for me, when we're talking about autonomy around curriculum, really that's the leaders of the school. And I really believe autonomy is driven by those leading the curriculum or those leading from the top. They create that culture and their expectations. And I think when you actually bring it back to the national curriculum and look at some of those subjects, um, for a few of them, there's very little directive in the national curriculum. So subjects like music and art and PE, um, for some key stages, you know, there's as few as three bullet points. And it's very much up to the school to put the meat on the bones of that curriculum. So the school has that autonomy to think about how they contextualize that. You know, what architects will their pupils see, what musicians. Um, whereas there's other subjects like computing, which is actually really specific. So there's not as much autonomy, you know, it's very clear you need to learn this, 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 and, and it's very precise around some of those um, aspects of computing. So in terms of the content, there might not be as much flexibility, but you might have more autonomy when it comes right to the software we use. Um, and often the most challenging bit when the autonomy with curriculum design is deciding what not to teach rather than what to teach. So I think that autonomy is very much set by the leaders and the culture and that sort of expectation. And, and um, having some of those decisions that are reviewed on a regular basis. And, and I also think it goes hand in hand with pedagogy. And sometimes it's really important that there is some autonomy to consider well, what's unique about those different disciplines and they consider uh, the appropriateness of the level of autonomy that's given to those different disciplines. So, you know, some schools um, may have a policy that every lesson there needs to be some sort of evidence or some sort of writing in the book. And, and this isn't always needed because in some lessons like music, it's, they're going to be much more practical. There's not a need for anything to be recorded in that level. And it's really important that autonomy is relevant. And I also think that autonomy can be on a scale. Our expert teachers with stronger mental models should have more autonomy and, and more trust to be able to choose maybe what they teach or how they adapt the curriculum and that flexibility, where maybe our novices will benefit more from a little bit more structure. So I do think that's really important. And, and alongside that, the real continuous cycle, um, which is constantly looking at reviewing and improving the curriculum, and that's not just fixed. And as Emma mentioned earlier, it's draft. So, you know, we, we've taught a unit or we've taught a term. Is there anything missing? What do we value as a school? And are we seeing this come through in our curriculum? If not, then is there a place to fit this in? Are we prioritizing the right things? How are we getting feedback from the curriculum, from the pupils, the parents, the teachers, the leaders? 
how, how do we continuously improve and, and then we're getting that following and that collective buy-in and then of course um you know context is key with that you know we need to have that autonomy just sometimes you know if i have a class where, where there's a very high level of special education leaves that yeah i might need to adapt how i teach or i might need to make some different decisions around which content i teach or which content i prioritize and that is important i do have the autonomy to do that um but that autonomy needs to not be at the risk of losing sight of those curriculum aims so i do think it's really important that we all have real clarity and the sequencing we know what we're learning in each subject when um but maybe a bit more autonomy around the how and a bit more autonomy around sort of where we're adding actually the meat to those bones there is a lot of autonomy there for schools to take a lead on that and sometimes you'll always capitalize on that so i think sometimes context is key but i do think it's getting that balance and i do think that the leaders of the school really set that tone And Emma, does that reflect into some of the work that you have seen? Uh, because you're in, you're in a role now where you almost have the privilege, and I say privilege only because I love going around different schools and talking to them, um, where you go and see other schools. And do you see that sometimes teachers are very rigid and don't have that opportunity for autonomy? And, that, and does it in some ways, and at some point, be detrimental to what those curriculum aims are. Like you say, one of the huge privileges is working with with teachers and working with schools across the country to see how they're implementing something. And one of the things that I think is really, really interesting is seeing how different schools take the same documents but turn them into something that works for them in their context. And I think you know the the really key thing is that we always say say with this once you you've bought into it it's part of your curriculum so you call it your curriculum you take ownership over it and um, and you have responsibility for making it work really really well so it's just a piece of paper really you know without the thought that goes into that implementation as Seamus said and i do think that that um you know, is really, really important because what we have seen, um, we used to we used to do, um, so we had the planning documents for the curriculum and we used to have flip charts that went with it as well. Um, not for the whole curriculum, but we started off um, having the flips in a couple of our schools. And what we noticed is teachers are really busy and they weren't reading the plans. They were just opening the flip because it was there and they were just delivering a lesson. And that's not that teacher's fault. It's just the culture they're working within. They're incredibly busy. They think there's a resource. I'm going to just pop it up on my board and I can probably just deliver this lesson. And actually then they'd really missed the vital part of engaging with the content. And I think although that takes time and energy, I think we must prioritize it because you've got to be thinking about why am I teaching this? Why is this the most important thing for them to learn about this period of history or about this period of art history? Or why is this piece of music the most um, you know, important piece of music for them to spend time listening to right now? So I think engaging with that implementation side of it is really vital. And, and you know, I, I think where where I've seen schools kind of go down a route of kind of being too um, wedded to exactly what it says in the plan, it comes from a place of, you know, sort of insecurity, um, you know, sort of low confidence or low subject knowledge. Um, and actually they, they sort of think, right, I've got to stick to exactly what this says. And that might be a process some teachers have to go through, some schools have to go through 
in the sort of first year of implementing something before they can really find their feet and say, do you know what? Last year when I taught that, I really stuck to exactly what it said on the plan. But this year I know more. I've got a bit more experience under my belt and I'm going to be able to deviate from it slightly um, because I know actually there's some locally relevant history that I can include in this lesson on the Romans. Or, you know, there's I actually know that there's some geographical feature that is really local. And so I'm going to add that in instead of something that they've given an example of in the curriculum. So I think it comes with time and confidence. And this idea that curriculum is always evolving means that, yes, you might be using a resource like primary knowledge curriculum or or, or something else. Um, but over time, it becomes yours and it becomes right for the children that you're teaching in your context. I mean, if you went completely the other way, and I've seen this with teachers, they look at, they look at the lesson plans that we provide and teachers are creative and teachers work hard and they say, that sounds nice, but actually I'm going to go and do this. And actually then we need to bring them back to that rationale behind the curriculum sequencing. Well, actually, if you don't teach what's in this lesson, children might not have prior knowledge when they come to the next unit or the next year. Um, you know, if you don't teach what is in this lesson, they're gonna, we're going to accidentally create a gap. So we just need to be thinking about, you know, the what and the why all the time. If we do deviate from, you know, a scheme of work, you know, we need to have a reason for that and we need to think about the consequences of doing that. It might be absolutely fine. It might be that we accidentally create knowledge gaps. So we need to be aware, um, you know, of what we're doing. So, yeah, I think I think the sort of the idea of kind of sticking to something too rigidly can be a problem. Um, but also over time, I think teachers, you know, their, their subject knowledge increases um, and their confidence increases as well. And then they can make you know, better decisions. The decisions I'd make now with, you know, many years of experience under my belt are very different from those experiences, those decisions I'd have made, you know, as, as what was called an NQT back then. Um, so I think, yeah, it's it takes time, it takes professional development. Um, but, you know, what we really want to do with all this curriculum work we're doing and with the book is is we want to support teachers to flourish because, you know, a flourishing teacher is going to be the best person to put in front of those 30 children. Let's dive a little bit into um, a couple of subjects. And probably a good way of doing this is looking at two different disciplines, PE and also history, and having a look at those in particular. But before we go into um, those subjects, Seamus, tell me about um, and I know when we already did a lot of work for this show beforehand, we talked about this idea of academic rigor and what does it mean for a teacher um, to engage in academic rigor, especially with the subject of history and what that may look in the like in the classroom as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a funny terminology, but I do think we need to have the expectation that children or the children and um, that the adult teaching the children does know enough about what it is they're teaching the children. And it is important that we do have that academic rigor in place. So, it, you know, if you're thinking around something, a subject like history, it is really important that the teachers have a deep understanding of chronology and, and those teachers can have a deep understanding of, well, this, this period of history, this is where it's placed within history. They're able to really actually talk about how you know, what we're learning is maybe shaped the future and, and that academic rigor really supports this. Um, another really important 
part of the academic rigor from teachers is that um, you're able to then anticipate and correct misconceptions and ensure that children aren't developing some of those common misconceptions. So, you know, a really typical one, as Amy mentioned, uh, history is sort of the Viking helmets with the really sharp horns um, that that's still taught quite frequently. Um, but when the teachers are experts and have that more academic rigor in that subject, they've got a real awareness of what some of these misconceptions are. Um, and when we know a lot about something and it's much easier to teach them and we can explain it much better and we can answer questions. Um, so I do think it's important that we do have time dedicated within professional development to developing subject knowledge of teachers because we can't know everything, but we do need to have an expectation of what we're teaching. The teachers do know really well. So I do think it is important that within those staff meeting times, inset days, that there is dedicated time to and really strong curriculums will already have planned what are some of these typical misconceptions, what some of the secure subject knowledge we should now be able to explain. Uh, and that enables us to be much more effective teachers. And I think if I can just add to that as well, um, you know, for pri- you know, at primary level, you know, we've got all the different subjects to think about. So like what we can feasibly achieve in terms of academic ri- rigor beyond the subject we have a degree in, um, you know, we need to be realistic about what we can expect primary teachers, you know, the level that we can expect them to engage with. But one of the things that is important for um, for us, you know, thinking about sort of curriculum sequencing and subjects possibly being taught discreetly is this idea of the identity of each discipline. So the example um, we were talking exploring was history. So we need to engage with things like, you know, how do historians write? What kind of questions do historians ask? Um, you know, how do historians work? What is it they're doing? And one of the things um, that we've thought about um, in PKC is, well, what is a historian to a five-year-old? So what does that mean? So, you know, even if a five-year-old can say, well, historians look at what happened in the past and some historians are looking in books for answers or looking at photographs or looking in newspapers. And then there are other kinds of um, historians who need, who actually look at they're called archaeologists, they look in the ground, you know, and that's something that we can expect um, children to start developing this idea of how do people work within that discipline and, you know, what do experts do within that discipline? How do they um, find things out within the discipline? How are they working? And I think that comes back to, um, you know, Seamus mentioned sort of misconceptions the misconceptions around the disciplines that we can kind of accidentally instill in children. So, you know, you guys would, would you know, identify with the idea of a crazy scientist and, you know, a guy in a white coat with white fuzzy hair blowing things up. You know, is that what we want? Do we want children to think that historians all live in libraries and are surrounded by piles and piles of books, you know, or actually are they out there finding things out, you know, um, looking at census data or whatever it might be. So what we want to do really is help teachers to engage in a, at a level that will help them to really give a true picture of what a dis- what the disciplines are um, to children and also to make sure they're kind of accessible for children. So, you know, if, if we were thinking about um, geography, you know, what kind of questions do geographers ask? Where do geographers work? Where might they go? What do they do? What are they looking for? When a geographer stands on the side of a mountain, what's a geographer thinking about? So it's that 
academic rigor for me for primary for primary school teachers is about the sort of identity of the discipline and how we get that across to children in in a way that's really accessible and helps them um you know to develop their own understanding of how you're thinking how you're working what you're doing when you're in that subject and how that might look different so how you know how do scientists work for example we might want to help children really identify with working scientifically and be saying things like, oh, I can see you're looking really closely at that leaf through that magnifying glass. Scientists look really closely at things too. And they ask questions about what they see. You know, that that might be a way of just supporting children's like disciplinary knowledge, their disciplinary understanding um, to help them understand, um, you know, how experts within those fields work. Um, so, yeah, thanks. I just wanted to add that, James, to the question. At this point, I would like to really point out again, thank you very much to Sage, who have very much kindly not only sponsored this show, but have also provided us with a 25% off if you go directly to the Sage website. Now, the Sage website is uk.sagepub.com, and they've got a whole array of fantastic books, including this one by Seamus and Emma on sequencing the primary curriculum. Now, the most important thing around this is the discount code. So don't forget this, TTR25. So if you want 25% off any books, if you buy directly from the Sage website, don't forget to use the discount code TTR25. Now, what does it then mean, as we dive back into this, what does it then mean to be a historian and how might that look different in year one and reception and the early years all the way up to year six? And where does that sequence and progress come um, for this idea of being a historian? Um, I'll, I'll throw that out you and see who wants to answer that one first. I can give it a go to start with. Um, great question, James. And I think, you know, this is part of the conversations we're having about this idea of curriculum being a journey is thinking about children's understanding. Um, it could be like their conceptual development. It could be their idea of the discipline, like the one, the question you've just asked us. But, you know, how would it look different? Well, I would say, you know, in early years, if children have been um, working towards their understanding the world, um, early learning goal at the end of reception, you know, they'll be thinking about the past and the present. And so for me, it would be you know, wonderful if we'd given children an opportunity to look at old photographs, to talk about, um, you know, when their parents were little or when their grandparents were little um, or, you know, starting with them even, you know, what was um, what were you like when you were a baby? So we can start that kind of idea. So but in terms of a historian, what I would be saying is, you know, from early years, if they've got an understanding of the past, then in key stage one, we can start saying to them, you know, historians tell us about the past. They look in books, they look at newspapers, they look at what's been left by people um, and they explain what life was like a long time ago. So if that was sort of key stage one, beginnings of key stage one, by key stage two, we'd be hoping that um, children are engaging with a lot more sources and being able to say, you know, that historians learn about the past, historians study the past historians ask questions about the past so sort of really getting into that idea of of the discipline and then by year six you know what we can do with children is um in 
so it's really helped them to understand this idea that actually historians don't always agree and that there are interpretations um, of the past and that there are different viewpoints depending on where and um, from where and from which point in history you stand and what you know. So that I think that really feeds into this idea that children then can start making their own decisions about things. You know, if they if they think that history is just fact and it is undeniable fact because it's in a book and therefore it must have happened, you know, we're actually doing them a bit of a disservice. If we can say, you know, actually when we look at the past now, we're looking from our perspective. But, you know, we might disagree with somebody um, who thinks that, you know, there's a different interpretation of the past. So then they can see that actually history is not this discipline that's just finished and done. And if you're interested in history, you're just interested in boring stuff that's already happened and it's really irrelevant. But actually, that history is changing as we discover more, as different voices come to light that for whatever reason were not the voices that were heard at the time. You know, when we talk about um, the curriculum earlier, we talked about diversity and this idea of telling you know, different stories and, you know, actually and amplifying those different voices. Well, that can change your kind of interpretation of history as well. So I think by by sort of Upper Key Stage 2, if we've done all the groundwork, you can be having these really interesting, relevant um, discussions with children um, and helping them to see that there's no one answer to the questions, you know, that there are many answers, different perspectives, um, you know, different viewpoints. Um, and, you know, it's up to them to to find out as much as they can and then form their own viewpoints as well. I don't know if you want to add anything to that, Shay. No, I think sort of you've a lot of them. I think, you know, a really good historian really understands the power of history and how it really helps the children understand the world that they're currently living in. Um, you know, what's led to the position we find ourselves in today? And there's a really good quote in the book where it talks about history is not always here to comfort us. So it is... Um, a reality that sometimes when we're looking at history, we are interpreting events that aren't always the most pleasant, but it's really important that children understand that a historian makes that connection with what came before us. Um, and it's our responsibility as teachers to establish that connection to the past. So that supports the understanding of children, uh, gives them a greater understanding of the world we live in, and, and they really understand how the past has shaped the present. And so sort of what we're doing at the moment will very much be the history which shapes the future. I think a really strong historian can articulate those consequences and have that really deep understanding of what history is. Brilliant. I I was um, trolling Twitter the other day, and one someone wrote a question or a statement on there, and they put, "The primary curriculum is overloaded." So how then do we make sure? that we include the significant and the important knowledge uh, that we need for our pupils. And my original question was, well, how do we choose those significant people to include within the curriculum? And there are subjects, particularly science, that are very much right. This is what you do year by year and part of the national curriculum. But there are other subjects that are more open to interpretation when you look at the national curriculum and its aims in terms of there. But how can we make sure that our curriculum isn't overloaded and within that as well? So, Seamus, I'll start with you on this one. Yeah, I mean, 
I think when you look at the national curriculum document, it's 200 pages long. And I think it's not until you get to about page 169 or 70 that you come to a subject other than English, maths or science. And I think it's um, part of the challenge is really understanding what you're prioritizing. So when we are thinking around a key stage one, it is really important that that early reading is prioritized. It is really important that children are developing ability to be able to read fluently so that opens the rest of the curriculum for them as they go into key stage two. And there has to be an acceptance and a reality that you haven't got time to teach everything. And that organization is really key. And I think it starts with that acceptance and that really deep understanding is what is the core knowledge that we want children to learn in each subject? What do we want them to remember when they're in years one, two, three, four, five, and six? What do we want them to be able to do really well at the end of early years? And then how can we teach within the reality of um, our timetable? So one of the things we do in, in my schools is we actually do have a calendar for the teachers where they will look at the mapping of our curriculum because part of the challenge is sometimes they oh, like that half term will do this sort of sequence of learning. And then next year we'll do the same sequence of learning, but then you realize, oh, actually that was eight weeks last year and now it's only six weeks this year. What do I next slide? Do I continue it after? So what we look at is what's that core knowledge? We have that real sort of clear core content that we want the children to know and be able to remember. That's mapped out and it's not onerous. We are literally looking at if they're learning about, uh, you know, this game in PA or if we're learning about this um, unit in history, what are probably the three most cognitively beneficial things that will enable them to be better historians, that will enable them to be able to access the curriculum because they're the three things you want them to know really well. And then within actually looking at the timetables, they will look into reality of, okay, I might only have five lessons to teach this, so I need to think about how I can teach this best within five lessons. And that might have been six lessons last year. And it's understanding that reality, because otherwise, if you don't know where to draw a line under it and you don't know, well, this is really key, this is the core knowledge of my children to learn, then what can happen is that time runs over, time runs over and it gets to the end of the year and the children just don't get to experience some of the planned curriculum as intended. So it is really important that we are organized. It's really important that we're reviewing. It's really important we're looking at the realities of the curriculum that's facing us. And, and you know, again, when we do our sort of mapping, we will think, right, okay, there's a date for a trip. That's the day when there's a visitor in. That's an assessment week. Let's look at what impact that might have on the curriculum. Is And let, let's work within the reality of what we're facing. But equally, what is the most coming to be beneficial knowledge that we've already identified that we want those children to really know and be able to remember by the end? Because that's our priority. So if it means one or two things need to slide, then so be it. And I think, again, whether if you are looking at schemes and if you're looking at maybe a curriculum which only designs maths or only designs history, there is a high probability that they will go significantly above and beyond the national curriculum. And if you're using all of those where, you know, maybe you're looking at a unit in science and they might plan 12 lessons, but the reality is you only have six. If you don't make those decisions quite early on, then the curriculum is going to become round. It's going to become crowded and you are going to find that you can't fit everything in. So I do think it's sort of looking at the realities, making sure that core knowledge is really key. Um, and now we went to, you have to make some sort of tougher decisions around that, but it's ultimately that planning and that work within the reality but that comes to having that sort of core knowledge and that sequencing really clear. 
Yeah, I did. You know, you're absolutely right, Shay. And I think it's about that organization, not kind of getting to week five and then thinking, oh, I'm like two weeks behind because we had a fire drill and overrunning assembly. And now I'm going to miss the, you know, the the key bits of of the unit. And I think that organization is really key. But like Shay says, it's also recognizing the reality of primary schools. But and I think one of the things we've got to think about, we've talked about this already tonight is, you know, what what gets left out. So if we do one thing, we can't do another. So what's the sort of opportunity cost of that? So when we're looking at what kind of what gets a position in the curriculum, you know, it is overload. You know, there's so much in the curriculum, but what what have we got in there? Does it all need to be there? What could we take out and what are the consequences of that? Um, you know, an example that's familiar to lots of you will probably be the Great Fire of London in year two. And so many schools we're going to, the Great Fire of London, we do it for six weeks. Why do we do it for six weeks? Well, there was an, an old QCA unit on it. And so that's what we do. And that's fine if if we think this is one of the most significant events in that historical period and um, children need six weeks to learn it, you know, great, that, let's go ahead and do it. But we need to be asking ourselves, you know, why are we doing this for half a term? You know, does it need half a term? You know, and and then can we think about, like Shay said, that those core things, you know, if we've got a trip, if we've got a visitor and, um, you know, we know that there's going to be science week or something else happening, we're going to get three history lessons in for this half term. So let's pick the most important, the most significant things that are really going to support those children for their future learning um, in that. And I think, you know, I, I certainly having worked in schools where, um, you know, with, with sort of high deprivation levels, I have this real sort of sense of urgency with the curriculum that for some children, that will be their only chance to learn that period of history in primary school. And then they'll be moving on. You know, they they may not have um, opportunities to learn um, this kind of knowledge outside of school. So I will always want to pack as much as we possibly can into the curriculum because children deserve, you know, really, really well thought through, um, interesting curriculum that is going to, you know, give them a really good foundation um, for moving on. So it is a challenge. And I think, you know, as primary school teachers, we're jumping from phonics to maths to you know um pshe and then we're teaching art in the afternoon or whatever and and it it can feel incredibly overloaded to us in that respect because we're having to you know to jump um between all of the subjects but i think the best thing we can do which is what we've come back to all evening is this idea of sequencing it really well so we know what's in it specifying what's in it because if we have that specified curriculum that's sequenced then we know what what we can cut when we have to or what we're going to put in because actually we've got a sort of seven week term and we've got an extra week and we really want to add in an extra lesson on something. So, you know, it's that idea of having it all really clear um, and being really organised with it that will that will sort of help to alleviate. It won't solve the problem of overloading, but I think it will help to sort of alleviate it and it will make sure we're doing the best we can. And I think as well, just a, a final thing, it, it's not constantly changing it all the time. If something's worked really well um, and it's successful, leave it alone. There's a temptation to be constantly, you know, shifting things around, moving things, or I've seen something new on Twitter, I'm, I'm like the idea, I'm going to let that slide. I think it is being disciplined as well yourself. That you, there may be something that you're like, oh, actually, I'd really like to move that around, but it's not necessary. It's not going to add any value. And, and sometimes we are constantly reinventing the wheel 
when we've got some things that already work in place. So there is always a, a, a temptation to, oh, I'm going to add that, I'm going to sort of jazz that up a little bit more, but actually it's fine, leave it alone. Um, so I think sort of that temptation as well, obviously we constantly want to be reviewing and reflecting, but we don't need to make any changes just to make changes. We've talked a lot about some heavy subjects um, in terms of the history and science and geography. But when we think about art and maybe PE, there's some real key uniqueness to those subjects because they are different disciplines. But this idea of how and why is knowledge important within those? And Seamus, you said, I think it was right at the beginning, um, We talk, you talked about like netball. They're going to do netball and they want to get a love of netball. They've got to do that year after year and be able to do this practice. But is there a place within, let's say, art, for example, where there is time to look at how has this artist been successful? Let's have a look at the history of art that goes throughout it as well. But also what is unique to a subject like um, PE that we could transfer out? And I think I really come back to when you talk about leadership, um, and I know this book's not about leadership. You always go, I always go back to books about sports leadership and things within that realm that can be transferred to education as well. So the key question is, what can we learn? What, why is knowledge important in art and PE, but also what is important and transferable in those subjects when we're thinking about it as well? Emma, I'll start with you. So, yeah, I mean, I think knowledge is important in all, in so many of the subjects. And I think something like art often at sort of primary level, you know, if, we, if we're non-specialists, we can think of art as, you know, oh, it's a creative subject. So I shouldn't be telling children what they need to do because they need to express themselves. And, you know, I definitely did that. And I remember, um, you know, getting all the paint pots out and putting some black paper out and saying, go on, then year one, off you go. And it was complete chaos. <laughs> but, you know, they had fun and there was probably value in doing that. Um, however, what I've realized, um, you know, doing a lot of this curriculum work is actually that there are still those small manageable steps that you can guide children through that will make them really successful. So, for example, using the example of art, thinking about how artists create texture, for example, you might want to look at several different artists and how they've created texture. And you might want to focus in on the sort of brush strokes that children can use, um, those very small brush brush strokes in, in different directions to create fur, for example. So if they were going to be painting a rabbit, you could look at Albert Dürer's um, famous painting of, of that beautiful rabbit that looks like you could just reach out and touch it. Um, and you could talk to children about that. So then you know, you could go, you could do it in small steps um, over several weeks. So they're really practicing, they're practicing their color mixing so they can do different tints and shades of brown if they were going to do, do a rabbit. And then what they produce at the end, you know, when they, when you say, okay, right, off you go with everything you know now, you know, go, go and um, paint, paint me an animal, what they're going to come up with, they're going to feel so much more empowered because it will look better the quality of what they're doing um will have some you know it will reflect all of those skills that they've been learning um and i do think that 
that really helps to spur children on, um, you know, to really love the subject. So I think it is really important, those kind of techniques that artists might be using. And I think on that sort of point, it's important with a subject like art to, to explain to children that, you know, an artist doesn't just sit down one day and create a masterpiece just like that. You know, there'll be years and years and hours and hours of work going into developing all of the skills that they need to create those final pieces. And they might draft and they might redraft, they might paint over it and start all over again, you know, as their ideas are developing over time so that children don't just think, right, well, the thing I've just produced in this lesson, I don't really like it. So therefore, I'm not very good at art. So I think, you know, not only are we teaching them about the subject, but we're also really supporting their own personal development as well. So, you know, teachers have got lots, lots of responsibility. But, you know, that idea of of knowledge um, being really crucial in subjects that, you know, we might think are more creative and therefore we need to take a step back as teachers. I think it's about knowing knowing the small steps that children need, thinking about the sequence of those small steps and knowing when to be responsive, when to say, right, I'm going to let you now respond, you know, with with that blank paper, you know, knowing when to hold their hand and when to just take a step back, I think is really sort of crucial for some of those subjects. And I think just to add to that, Emma, I think there is always a, okay, well, knowledge versus skills and, and should they just be you know, always practical, should always be hands-on, should we just always be allowing that complete freedom in subjects such as art? I mean, but when we sort of explore and develop a knowledge of artists, what we're helping the children to do is to develop their knowledge as an artist. Um, and one of the sort of flaws sometimes in art curriculum design is they might learn about an artist, but they might just learn um, some random facts. So this is where they're from, or he chopped off his ear, or sort of quite random bits and that are disconnected but, but what um a really strong art curriculum will do will help them understand how that art is possibly showing that art is expression at the time and um, how that can be interpreted and how we can read art like we do in english and like we do in literature and if we're studying for example the blue period and we're then understanding how that links with the relevant artists and, and what that's portraying and how that's not just a painting it's so much more or if we look at you know there's a famous artist who went blind for a period of her life and began to lose a vision. So she then switched to sculpture. But it's really important, you know, for children understanding, well, actually, that, that sort of real personal experience for them impacted and, and enabled them to be creative and enabled them to be inspired to, you know, portray this element of art. And we can find some similar inspirations. And there's so many stories of, you know, some of those famous artists who, have really showed resilience and perseverance and that gives you know so many transferable messages to the children so i think it's, it's that knowledge and that connection and we absolutely want our children to be sort of leaving key stage to having greater ownership and autonomy in a subject like art but if they've you know studied say self-portraits and they've looked at different artists and how they tackle self-portraits and um, a lot of self-portraits and mean and different sort of textures and approaches and styles and stories they've told that if we say to them in year five or year six, give them autonomy to do their own self-portrait, um, if they're much more likely to be creative and are much more likely to produce something more unique if they know lots of different ways and they've experienced lots of different ways. If they just do, you know, in reception, we always do our self-portrait, don't we, as soon as the children come in and then they go on display for a year. And then we don't teach them really self-portraits again or sort of how we can express and show ourselves um, through and how different artists have inspired it then the children are less likely to be successful by the end. 
So I think that knowledge enables that creativity and knowing lots empowers you to to be more creative. That's a really good way to sum up and get that idea of love of learning and especially moving away almost from those Jaffa cake moon phases or the Stonehenge custard cream examples that we've all seen across curriculums. Um, and I think now the state of affairs is we're very much looking at that why and that journey. And as Seamus, you just said, knowing that depth will always create that love of learning and be able to see that progress as well. But before we finish, I've got, got a couple of questions. Now, the aim of the book that you wrote at the beginning was to support those teachers who are very much newly qualified or just starting to look at curriculum planning. So for both of you, what's that one piece, and I'm going to try and limit you to one, what's that one piece of advice you would offer educators who are just starting out um, or newly qualified regarding curriculum um, and their understanding of it? I'll start with you, Emma, and then I'll go, Seamus, you can carry on straight away afterwards. Oh, that's going to be really hard for me to pin it down to one thing. I could, oh, I could give you a whole book, James. Um, really hard. I think, okay, I'm going to have to pick something. Uh, for me, it would be sort of some words of advice, I guess. Remember the journey. So that's for the children are on a journey. You're on a journey as a teacher. I wish I could go back and say to my NQT yourself, one day you're going to be on a podcast talking about your book. I would literally not believe you. But like it's a it's a journey. Everyone's on a journey, and all the ch- you know the children are on their own journey. You you have that really privileged position to be part of the journey that they're going on. You can think about you know curriculum as a journey, but also for your own subject knowledge, your own career. You know, teaching is a fantastic career. Um, to be part of, you know, education as a whole, um, you know, it's all part of a journey. And I hope that, you know, one day if if I get to be a little old lady sat in an armchair somewhere, I hope I can just look back on that journey and say, you know what, it was really, it was really, really good fun. And I learned a lot on the way. So there we go. That's my, that's my last bit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I guess, yeah, it's a tricky question because there's lots of there's lots of words of wisdom you'd like to give. Um, but I would say it's really important that you enter the profession being really open-minded to your existing view of what good curriculum and good uh, teaching and learning looks like might be different to the reality. And I'd really encourage those new to the profession to really lean and build relationships with those more expert teachers within the school um, who you might make a, um, I take a view that they're maybe not the kind of teacher you want, but I can guarantee you now that they will have a wealth of guidance, expertise and support that I'd really recommend that you lean into as a new novice teacher going into the profession. And just remembering you are a novice and you can't be expert at everything. I think you both have shared lots of words of wisdom throughout this uh, podcast, so don't worry about (laughs) that. I think at the end, I think I'm just going to sum it up at the end here because there's some whole array of 
uh, nuggets of information that you have given our listeners about effective curriculum design, how it should be organized, how much teacher autonomy and what that could look like and the creativity within that, uh, what we mean by academic rigor um, throughout that, what a scheme is and what it isn't, but also really key one is about that diversity there's also that creativity throughout the breadth of the national curriculum and i know as a primary school teacher the reason why i came into being a primary school is that i liked that breadth i think one of the things that we should come away from this episode and especially the book that you have both written sequencing the primary curriculum is we need that depth as well and really carefully thinking about what we're teaching our children and why and if we only leave with that and knowing that we want to think about the journey our pupils go through surely all our pupils will be in a better place so i want to leave tonight saying thank you very much to emma and thank you very much to seamus for both joining us thank you very much to sage for sponsoring this show as well so to listen back to Teachers Talk Radio, please download Poppy Map or visit your favourite podcast player and search for Teachers Talk Radio. This is on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and all of the other um, podcast apps as well out there. Follow us on Twitter or X as it's now known at TT Radio Official and tweet us using the hashtag. Thank you, Emma. Thank you, Seamus. And thank you, Sage, for sponsoring this. Thanks, James. At this point, I would like to really point out again, thank you very much to Sage, who have very much kindly not only sponsored the show, but have also provided us with a 25% off if you go directly to the Sage website. Now, the Sage website is uk.sagepub.com, and they've got a whole array of fantastic books, including this one by Seamus and Emma on sequencing the primary curriculum. Now, the most important thing around this is the discount code. So don't forget this, TTR25. So if you want 25% off any books, if you buy directly from the Sage website, don't forget to use the discount code TTR25. And thank you for all of you listening. I know we had some international visitors who were coming on tonight's show. And until next time, goodbye. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.